0: Well, this evening I'd like to have you all turn to Revelation chapter 6 one more time. Actually, it will be two more times this evening and next weekend. Or next Wednesday, I should say. Then we'll complete chapter 6 move on to chapter 7. Usually that's the thing to do, go from 6 to 7. That's a good thing to follow that uh, direction. <coughs> we are still looking at the very onset of the tribulation period, as already introduced to us by the four first seals that have been broken and opened, releasing the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the white horse with the rider who brings a false peace. The fiery red horse that uh, signifies the wars that come because of the false peace. Paul reminds us of that when he says to beware when you hear people saying peace and safety because sudden destruction will come. <clears throat> and then there's the, the black horse that uh, brings about the pestilence and the, well I should say not the pestilence, I'm sorry, the uh, uh, The famine. The hunger because of the wars that take place. And following that, of course, is the pale horse that does signify the pestilence and the disease that takes place. It's a reminder to us of the, the painful thought that what is going to be left in this world after the church is taken out of the way... As the Lord is preparing to deal with Israel, to bring them back to Him, there's not going to be a good time. When we think about the day of the Lord, we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight. And then... In an up-and-coming Sunday morning and Saturday night, we're going to focus our attention on the day of the Lord. Because I think it's it's essential that not only we that are studying the book of Revelation on Wednesday night uh, get to understand it, I think the whole church needs to understand it. If it were up to me, the whole church should be here studying the book of Revelation. But uh, I'm thankful for those of you that are here tonight. Well, the fifth seal is now to be opened. And here in verse 9, it says, When he, speaking of Jesus, who was the only one that was worthy of breaking the seals, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain, for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of the, their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were, was completed. Now this is just an author's idea, or I should say a painter or artist's idea artist's rendition of an altar with souls underneath it in white robes. Once many, many, many years ago here in this country, when Calvin Coolidge was vice president and presiding over the Senate, an altercation arose between two senators. Now, Tempers flared, and one senator told the other to go straight to hell. While the offended senator stormed from his seat, marched down the aisle, and he stood before Mr. Coolidge, who was silently leafing through a book. Mr. Vice President, he said, did you hear what he said to me? (laughs) And Coolidge looked up from his book, and he calmly said, You know, I've been looking through the rule book. You don't have to go. You don't have to go. You don't have to go to hell. The thing about it is most people in this earth, they don't have to go. Whether knowing it or not, many choose that direction in their life. In the remainder of this chapter, we're going to see two groups of people. We're going to look at one group today. But we're going to see two groups of people in the remainder of this chapter. One group is going to be put to death for their faith in Jesus Christ, while the other group verses 12 through the rest of the chapter, will be hiding from God and wanting to die as they refuse to turn to Christ. One group is destined to heaven and the other group is destined for hell. And each individual has the choice of where he will spend eternity depending on what he does with Christ. Christ. And keep in mind that all these things are taking place during the tribulation period as Jesus opens the fifth and the sixth seals of judgment that is coming upon a Christ-rejecting world. Now, we're only going to cover the fifth seal broken as we already read. But I want you to understand something. We need to to have this as a foundation of what we're studying tonight and next week. And that is what we're going to see and read in, in the book of Zephaniah. It is one of the minor prophets. And in Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14, it says, The great day of the Lord is near. The great day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord is the key verse or the key phrase. And it is a great day. Not great as if to say, you know, uh, great in in a good sense. Great more than anything in a in an awesome sense but a but but more of a a, a uh, ominous sense the great day of the lord is near it is near and hastens quickly the noise of the day of the lord is bitter so that gives you an idea of this seven year period which is called the tribulation period what we've read in another in another prophecy which is called the time of Jacob's trouble because that reflects upon what God is doing during those seven years in reaching to his people Israel and bringing them back into his uh, fold as it were but it says the noise of the day of the Lord is bitter there the mighty men shall cry out. And in essence, the picture is, no matter how mighty you may think you are, this day is going to be so heavy upon you that you will begin to cry out as if there is no hope. That day is a day of wrath. I want you to notice this. It is a day of wrath. What does the Scripture tell the church that God is going to keep us from? The day of wrath. Please understand that the Scriptures don't contradict. There is a whole reason why God has chosen to take the church out at the time that He says He's going to take it out because and then say, you know, I'm promising to take you out And you need to pray that you can escape the day of judgment, the day of wrath. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. I mean, this description just is so devastating. Paul says, We're not of the darkness, we are of the light. We're not of the night, we're of the day. This is describing night, folks, on this earth. No matter how bright the sun may shine, it is describing a time of darkness. A day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. Doesn't matter how much our defenses in, in this time are going to be built up. It's going to be as if there are no walls at all. No walls, no, no uh, defense mechanisms of any kind. Today we have very sophisticated walls surrounding our nations. But those walls will not stand. When God brings judgment, you see. I will bring distress upon men, and they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like refuse. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. For he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. Now there's another key. Those who are dwelling in the land. If we're not here, we're not dwelling in the land. Do you understand that? Because of what the Lord says he's going to do in taking the church out of the way. And there's a few reasons we've talked about it. Because when he takes the church out of the way, he's also taking with him that which... Uh, restrains, the restraining or the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. It's not to say that the Holy Spirit isn't going to be active during that time. But what has been on the earth since the time of the church, what was put into the church in, in the book of Acts when they received that wind of the Spirit that came upon them and the fire of the Holy Spirit was signified upon them and the church is going to have the, the you know that, that power on this earth. One of the reasons why we're in this particular pa- passage today, why, why the world hates the church today. Because of the power of the restrainer who is on the true church of Jesus Christ. So he's going to make a speedy riddance, it says, of all those who dwell in the land. And in a word, that's spooky. If you're going to stay here, because you reject the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ... And I want, to keep, I want you to keep in mind that these things have not yet taken place. We are still in the day of grace. We are still in the day of light. We may not see a whole lot of light, but I'll tell you this. If you're a part of the church of Jesus Christ, you are the light of the world, Jesus said. Matthew chapter 5. You are the light of the world. So there's still light, you see. As long as the church is here, there's light. You take the church out of the way, there's no light. Please understand that the Word of God does, is not going to contradict itself. You have to look at all of these particular signs. So, it's, uh, you know, this, this time is not yet taking place, but it is coming, notice, upon the earth dwellers, those who have rejected Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their lives. But Paul tells us that of those that do believe in Him as it says in Romans 5, verse 9, much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from from wrath, through Him. So with all that in mind, we have to understand what this is all leading to. With all that in mind, let's press on into this next section of chapter 6. Because with rapid pace, the four horsemen of the apocalypse will ride forth to open the world's most earth-shattering seven years. And what is quite significant to me is that at that time these seals are broken, the earth will be practically as it is today. There's not going to be a whole lot of difference, except for the very fact that there's not going to be the light that comes through the the, the church in the the form of, of the church being here with the Holy Spirit and the light of the gospel, the light of the glory of God in in Christ in us. So what is quite significant then to me is that at that time that these seals are broken, the earth is going to be like it is practically today. And before these seven years will have passed, before the seven years will have passed, a lot of things are going to change. The kingdom of this world will have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. You got that? Before the seven years is up the kingdom of this world will have become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. What do we normally say about who kind of rules this earth today? What do we call Him? We call Him the Prince of this world. We know who that is, right? But before this seven-year period is up, the kingdom of this world will have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. The prince of this world will have had His power taken from Him. And the God of this world will have lost all claims to His self-proclaimed divinity. Without a lot of people knowing this, if they do not bow to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, whether they know it or not, they're bowing to the God of this world. Because you either serve Jesus or you serve the that you serve the enemy. You either, you either serve Jesus or you serve the enemy. But if you reject Jesus completely, then you're going to realize, I've been serving the enemy. And then you're going to see that the enemy isn't God, and he never has been, and he never will be, even though he wants to be. And we've seen that from Genesis chapter 3. And Isaiah 14. Ezekiel 28. But now for us, these seven years lie before us. See, they're they're, they're right before us. They're ahead of us. And the Antichrist, whom we will know as the beast, followed by the other horsemen, the four horsemen, has come forth. And with the opening of the fifth seal, there is a cry that is heard, uh, the cry of the martyrs slain for their testimony to God's truth and their faithfulness to the Word of God. Let's go to, uh, to verse 9 of our text. When He opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. for Now, no, I want you to notice why they were slain. They were slain for the Word of God and, and for the testimony which they held. As we've done before... I want you to look at the Lord's prophecy that he gave on the Mount of Olives. Boy, I'm sure I'm having trouble with this thing on my ear. Maybe it's my ear that doesn't work. Because it keeps wanting to pop off here. Okay, there we go. Hopefully that's better. So let's look at the Lord's prophecy that He gave at the Mount of Olives, what we call the Olivet Discourse. It's Matthew 24. So turn to Matthew 24, because we have to continue to look at and and compare what we see here in, in the beginning of the tribulation period in Revelation with what Jesus told His disciples before He went to the cross. So in Matthew 24, verse 8, He says, All these are the beginning of sorrows. These are just the beginning of sorrows. That would pretty much let us know that we're dealing with the very beginning of this seven year period. And a lot happens. We we might think, well, isn't there a peace? Yeah, there's a peace treaty given. But if the church has been taken out of the way, there's a real need for us to understand why that peace treaty needs to come into effect. The world is in utter chaos. And Jesus understood that when He said all these are just the beginning of sorrows. And then He says this. Then... They will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. Now, what's interesting here, a lot of people don't understand as you look at this particular passage, but when you look at the word you there, those who don't believe in in the end time prophecies as being for the future, you know, they're not, they they, they think they've already passed. They say, well, you see, it was just talking about the disciples that Jesus was with. But the you is in such a form and and a tense that, that signifies that it's not just talking about them. He's speaking to the church. He's speaking to believers. And we see that time and time again in the scriptures. The word of God is for all of us, isn't it? So we have to continue to look at and compare the prophecies and tie the prophecies in not only with near fulfillments like in the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, and all of the rest, but how those same prophecies have a near fulfillment to them and a far fulfillment for us. So they're still going to be valid. And and so what Jesus is talking about is a time when these disciples wouldn't even be there. But nonetheless, he's speaking to them to tell others of what is to come when the time is right. He says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, it says. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another and will hate one another. I have, to, I have to say it, and I hate to say it, but I have to say it, that's already happening in the church today. There will be people who actually hate us because we're teaching what we're teaching in the book of Revelation. And they, and they hate us because we love Israel. And we love Israel because God wants us to love Israel. But they don't believe that Israel really exists anymore. That the church has replaced Israel with all the blessings that were supposed to be given to Israel. The church has replaced it. But no, He hasn't. God isn't done with Israel. If He had replaced Israel with a church, then why does He keep mentioning Jerusalem? Why does He keep mentioning the land? Why does He keep mentioning all of the, uh, the enemies that surround Israel? Time and time and time and time again. There is no way to, to, put, to make all of that metaphor. There's no way to make it all analogy. It's all real. And those of you that have been to Israel know it, right? You've seen the land. You've tasted the fruit. It's fulfilled prophecy that Israel is there. And we love Israel, whether they love the Lord yet or not. Because they're God's people. And God said, I... We'll restore them. That's what these seven years are for. So again, as, as we have seen, things will be deteriorating during the tribulation period. Those first three and a half years of pseudo-peace, fake peace, will turn into violent wars with many losing their lives. And on the heels of those wars, there will be famines that will take many lives. With all that death, there will be great pestilence and disease that will take its toll on many more lives. You see now the horsemen and their effect? The animal kingdom will not be spared either. And in just the first four seals being opened, anywhere from 1.5 to 2.25 billion people will perish. We talked about it last week. And out of all this turmoil, who will the world blame? I want you to think about that question. Out of all this turmoil, who will the world blame? Well, we are so glad that, those other, those, that the Christians are out of our hair, no matter what, we don't understand how that happened, but we're so glad that they're out of the, our hair now. Now we can live our lives the way we want, and we can have peace the way we want. But there's still some people who believe. Let's just consider our day and time. Who are many of them blaming today for the ills of the world? Christians, believers in Jesus Christ. They're being blamed. We are being blamed. We're being too strict. We have no tolerance. Of course, they don't have any tolerance with us. We're not loving. We're just haters. We hate everybody. Which is a lie, of course. We love everybody that Jesus loves because Jesus died for them all. Right? Jesus even taught us to love those who hate us and despitefully use us. We're to love those who persecute us even. So who do you think will feel the brunt of this anger during the tribulation? Those who have come to Christ during that great and dark day of the Lord. Don't think that just because you go to a church... And if the rapture were to happen, that everybody would go just because you're inside the church. No, you have to believe. You have to have that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You have to have that relationship with Jesus. Boy, if that ever happens on a night where there's, there's people in church and they're going to say, what happened? Those will be the ones that will probably say, Wow. We should have paid attention. Now we have to pay attention. Because you're either going to reject that message or not. And most of them are going to say that God is real because of what He just did. And they're going to take up the banner of the cross. They will take up the banner of Christ. only problem is, when you see the Lord opening the fifth seal, we see the result of Antichrist's fury as it is poured out upon those who will come to Christ and will have rejected the evil one's policies. And these saints who are a nuisance to the world are seen by the Lord as a beautiful sacrifice. You see, the world will see the church or the Christian as, as, as a nuisance, but the Lord sees them as a, sac, as a beautiful sacrifice as the blood of Christ covers them as they wait under the altar for God to avenge their blood. That's the scene that we're looking at today. The fact that these souls are under the altar emphasizes that their life blood was poured out as an offering to God. You know, when an animal was slain in the Old Testament times, the the majority of the blood from the sacrifice would be poured out under the altar. Under the altar. Exodus 29 verse 12. You shall take some of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger and pour all the blood beside the base of the altar. Literally, that was saying you put it under the altar. The base was under the altar. One other passage, Leviticus 4 verse 7. The priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting, and he shall pour the remaining blood of the bull at the base of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. The altar being at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, but the blood goes under the altar. And that's the that's the tie-in with with this. This is a sacrifice. Now, this may seem like this judgment is coming against God's people, but it isn't. We need, we need to frame our mindset to understand what this is all about. It is not a judgment against God's people. You see, as this seal is opened and Christians are martyred for their faith, and by the way, they're not called the church. Where's the church? The redeemed from all time have been in heaven before the throne of God. But they are believers in Jesus Christ now. And they're going to be martyred for their faith. And those that are, uh, those that are perpetrating these crimes against God's people are storing up on themselves the vengeance of God. The judgment is not upon the martyr. Hey, folks, we've had martyrs since the first century church. People have given their lives for Christ from the very beginning. Stephen, and I'll talk about Stephen in just a moment very briefly, but I'll just mention him. Stephen was the first, in essence, of the church. To give his life when Saul of Tarsus, before he becomes Paul, was actually going around making sure that Christians suffered for their faith in Christ. And what he was doing was actually perpetrating these kind of judgments upon people who were actually his brethren, Jewish brethren in the Lord. And then Paul, or Saul, when he's on his way to Damascus, gets to meet Jesus and forever changes the history of the world. Paul... Changed the history of the world. God used him to take the gospel as far as he did. To the known world at that time. And of course the other apostles too. And each one of them. Except for John. We talked about John before. But each one of them gave their lifeblood for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we've had martyrs before. Was it a punishment upon them? No. They gladly gave their life. Peter, in one of those times when he, you know, he, Peter was good at, at expressing his heart, except the, the fact that sometimes he put his, mouth in, his foot in his mouth too often, but... But he meant well. He wanted to defend Jesus, you know. And then in another time, he wanted to say, well, you know, I'll be, I'll, I'll go, you know. No, 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 no. It's not you. It's me first. <laughs> me first, Jesus said. He says, but you are going to suffer for me. As a matter of fact, he even told Peter that the, a, a bit of the way he was going to suffer, he was going to actually suffer by being crucified upside down. But it was that Peter chose that because he didn't want to, he he didn't feel worthy to be crucified like Jesus was. The martyrs down through the ages, I I think I've made reference to the fact that you need to read the book, the Fox's book of martyrs. But but when you read that, you, you, you begin to realize that this wasn't a judgment. They were carrying on the work that God had given them. And these tribulation saints, once they come to a realization that God is real, that Jesus was real, that the Word of God was real, they're ready to give their lives. But it's the the perpetrators of these crimes... Folks, we we, you know, we have to pray for our nation because we have people in our nation today that are ready to persecute Christians just for being Christians. Just for believing in Jesus. And just for believing in the cross of Christ. Just for believing in the blood of Jesus Christ. Just for believing what we believe about the Lord. Just for believing that He rose again from the dead. People want to persecute us. They're, They're smacking their lips. They can't wait. But the restrainers still here, at least in this country. There's a lot of persecution going on in other countries right now. And we need to pray for our brothers that are going through all of this. I don't know if you heard about that German family that they've asked for, you know... I don't know if it's asylum, but they, they best have, you know, to, for the government to kind of let them come and, 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 and become members of, of, of you know, uh, citizens of the United States. Because they, they're not allowed to let their children, who are they're, it's a Christian family, they're not allowed to let their, their children uh, be homeschooled in Germany. Especially being that they are Christians. So they come to the United States. Now our stupid government wants to send them back. I'm sorry to say. Isn't that sad? And I shouldn't say it's just our government. I mean, you know, those in this administration anyway. What are they thinking? They've just hired somebody to come into, into the Department of Defense to tell... The branches of the armed forces that their chaplains cannot preach Jesus Christ—that are Christian chaplains, by the way—does that make sense? Now, what country are we living in? See, but that—the idea is—we're moving toward the tribulation. We're moving toward it now. It's all around us. But God's not mocked. Look at this. Well, look at this. There it is. Psalm 9, verse 12. When he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. And what have we heard in, in this passage in Revelation? The cry. Of those slain for the word of God and for their testimony now there is something that we need to understand about these tribulation saints very important that we we kind of get a grip on these things there have certainly been many martyrs as I've said before in every generation of the church of Jesus Christ and even in, in the 20th and 21st centuries tens of thousands have died for Christ in various parts of the globe now there are several reasons however for believing that a greater period of martyrdom is yet ahead So what I'm going to tell you is, first of all, this, that after the rapture of the church and the beginning of the tribulation period, there is going to be one of the greatest revivals to ever take place. Now, it's not going to be a revival like we understand revival nowadays, where they're going to have, you know, crusades and they're going to have all kinds of big places. No, it's going to be a revival of all those believers that are going to take forth the word of God and witness for Christ in spite of the fact that they may lose their lives for doing it. That's a great revival. But with that kind of revival comes the persecution that is, that is going to be quite uh, intense. <coughs> so, we have to realize that there are several reasons for believing that a greater period of martyrdom is yet ahead. If, if the church has already been raptured, the dead in Christ have been raised. Now listen carefully. If the church has been raptured... The dead in Christ have been raised from the dead before the time pictured here. The dead in Christ have already been raised, right? First Thessalonians 4. We will not be caught up before the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with Him and we shall ever be with the Lord forever, right? You, all, you got that picture? Now, this is the tribulation. So if the church has already been raptured, the dead in Christ have been raised from the dead before the time pictured here. And those pictured do not include the martyrs of the present dispensation. In fact, if the martyrs are asking for judgment, listen carefully, if the martyrs are asking for judgment upon those that dwell on the earth, because that's what they're doing there in verse 10 of our text. If the martyrs are asking for judgment upon those that dwell on the earth, then it is apparent that their persecutors are still living. Do you see that? They're asking for vengeance upon those who are dwelling on the earth. Present tense for them in the future. That's significant. The persecutors are still alive. You got it? I want to make sure you got it. You see that? All right. So when you look at verse 10, and they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell present tense on the earth? That means they're alive. So now we've singled out. That these are tribulation saints that it's talking about underneath the altar. Now, another factor to consider is that we are already living in an age of mass persecution. The horror camps of the Nazis have provided a terrible illustration of what lies ahead for the world. After the Second World War, the Nazi war criminals were put on trial at Nuremberg and their unbelievable atrocities and calculated cruelty were put on public display. But that doesn't stand alone. Communism can lay claim to millions more in the former Soviet Union, in China, in Cambodia, in Laos, and yes, even in Vietnam, just to name a few places. And Jesus said this, Matthew 24, verse 12, he said, And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. A third factor to consider about these tribulation saints is what they will recognize after the church is snatched away. When the body of true believers is caught away from the world, all of unbelieving ecclesiasticism, all unbelieving ecclesiasticism will be left in control of whatever assembly or organization calling itself the church is left behind on the earth. Just, just as there is a state church in China, Which is kind of an oxymoron, because Christ isn't the head of that church. The Chinese government is the head of that church. The true church is underground in China, and growing every day, by the way. But we're going to see as we get more into the book of Revelation that there is going to be a false church, a false church. There's one now. That's the foundation of this false church to come. Where there are so many people who call themselves ministers and, and doctors and uh, reverends and all kinds of... Don't call me reverend, by the way. Don't do that. I'm not reverend. You know who is? Jesus. He's the only one. He, he's worthy of that title. But they are all kinds of names, you know. The most high reverend or Whatever. High sometimes because they're all get into the sacramental wine too much. And they wear the robes and the collars and all of that. Understand what I'm saying. Many of them do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet they're behind pulpits Today. Many of them do not believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. You go to some of these seminaries today, and the first thing they'll want to tell you is, there really isn't a a, a virgin birth of Christ. There really wasn't a resurrection of Jesus. But you know, we have to let people know they need a little bit of hope from something. Well, man, if if, if we have no virgin birth and no resurrection, we have no hope. So what are they teaching them? Oh, let's be kind to one another and let's accept everybody for what they are and, you know, what they do and, you know, just have, you know, tolerance. Is tolerance getting us anywhere in this world? Are we finding any peace in it? I mean, there's this tremendous campaign today for everybody in the world, especially here in the United States, to to please accept Islam because, you know, they're a peaceful religion. Not. It isn't peaceful. Their writings aren't peaceful. The Quran is not peaceful. It's only peaceful if you accept Allah. It's the only way. And so you have all of this ecclesiasticism that's trying to teach a quote-unquote better way. There's no better way than the Word of God. But they've rejected it. So they'll be the ones when, you know, when the church is taken out, well, well we, we've got the true church now, you see. And we'll talk about that as we go on. But there will be some who will see immediately After the rapture of the church that the word of God is true and that there has been a gigantic satanic deception perpetrated in the midst of Christendom. So in other words a false church will be established and the tribulation saints will recognize it for what it is and instead they will accept and believe the true word of God. They will receive and preach the true word of God and for this they shall die for their faith. We'll talk more about this false church, as I said, in later chapters of Revelation. What we can now mention is that these saints who will be martyred for their faith and trust in the word of God during the tribulation are identified for us in chapter 7. So turn over to chapter 7 for a moment. Of course, we will study this later. But it says, then one of the elders answered, saying to me, who are these arrayed in white robes and where do they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These, listen, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the thrones of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. Kind of gives us an indication of how they may be treated uh, during that time of persecution. But it says, for the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to, the li- to living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Taking a step back for just a moment, consider, if you will, why men have hated the word of God, why they still hate the word of God, and why they will continue to hate it well into the tribulation period. The simple answer is that it is the written word of God that reveals the creator of the heavens and the earth, as well as the Messiah, who, by the way, is the creator of the heavens and the earth, and the living word of God. That's what the Word of God reveals. And that's why the world hates the Word of God. Take this hatred back, if you will, to the Garden of Eden. Go all the way back to Genesis 3.15. I know I mentioned it a lot, but listen to what it says. God is speaking directly to the serpent and He says, I will put enmity, in other words, I will put hostility between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That tension, that hostility, that enmity between the seed of the woman. I mean, We, we, we can talk about this later on when we get to another passage in the book of Revelation. But, it, you know, there is that understanding that Jesus is going to come through Israel and did. The seed of the woman. The woman being Eve, but then, of course, being brought to Jesus. Or Jesus being brought, actually, from her. But the hostility began there. That's where it all began. There's another time that, that word em, enmity is used, and it's in Romans 8, verse 7, where it says, "...because the carnal mind is enmity against God." The carnal mind is hostile, you see, against God. Therefore, if the carnal mind is hostile toward God, it is also hostile toward the Word of God, and it is hostile toward the Logos of God, who is Jesus Christ. The, the carnal mind, the fleshly mind, is hostile toward God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Well, it can't be. When we were unbelievers, we did what we wanted to do. Thank God that He saved us. Right? Yes. Thank the Lord that He saved us. Thank the Lord that He gave us wisdom enough to understand and then to receive and to know the blessings of the work of Christ. Because carnal man does not hate the world's idea of God. They hate the Christ in God. Cardinal man does not hate the world's idea of God. The world's idea of God is, oh, man, you can believe whatever you want about God. Just let me believe what I want to believe about God. But we can't do that if we know that there is only one true God. And there's only one document that expresses who that one true God is, and that is the Word of God. That is what we carry with us, and I hope you carry it with us. I hope you carry it with you. And read it all the time. Because listen to what Jesus said to his disciples before he went to the cross. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. See, that's why ecclesiasticism is going to have such a, 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 an effect with, with the world. Is that They'll look and say, well, you're not stepping on our toes, so we're going to accept you because you don't step on our toes. We like the way you handle your particular Christianity. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Well, that's going on today. Yet because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. He chose us out of the world. We want to go and tell everybody about Jesus, and then they say, "You're crazy. You're nuts. You're an idiot. Get out of my face." That's what the world does. Doesn't want to hear about it. Thank the Lord that uh, God opens the hearts of people in preparation. So that's why you have to pray for others. That's why you have to pray for the people that you're going to minister to, because you know you have to ask God to open their hearts so that they can receive the truth. Of the gospel. How many? How many of you were, have, have have come to know Christ in the last five years? Don't be ashamed. Raise your hand. Isn't that a blessing? Isn't that a blessing that within the last five years, when I mean, we're talking about you know this this whole idea that you know Christianity is just just needs to be you know just gotten rid of. Yet you came to Christ. That tells us something. That tells us, first of all, the Holy Spirit is still working through the church and working through those who are true believers and people are still receiving Christ as their Lord and Savior. Still happening. Praise God. Verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. They certainly did to the disciples, didn't they? If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things, he says, they will do to you for my name's sake. Notice, for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. They don't know the Father. They don't know the one true and living God. Now, some have had concerns with the cries of vengeance by the tribulation saints. In other words, is it Christian for these martyred saints to pray for vengeance on their murderers? After all, Jesus and Stephen, as I mentioned, was the first martyr of the church age. Jesus and Stephen prayed that the Lord would forgive those who killed them. Well, I'm confident that that while they uh, live through their persecution, that they will pray for those who persecute them. I'm talking about the the tribulation saints. I mean, we pray for those who, who say bad things to us. Right? Because we understand better. We know. Well, we don't get into a shouting match with them. As a matter of fact, the Word of God tells us not to do that. It tells us to love them. It's better to be quiet and just pray for them than it is to try to get into this big you know, argument. We need to approach things with wisdom, but we also need to approach things with love. And what is Jesus all about? He's all about love, isn't He? Not the way the world wants it. But love that says, I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to give my life so that others will have life. And those who believe in me will have that life. So I'm confident that through their persecution, they will pray for those who persecute them. But the question, folks, listen carefully. The question is not whether they whether their enemies would be judged, but when they will be judged. That's the question. Because the cry, notice, in just a moment, the cry is going to be, how long, O oh Lord. How long, O Lord? Not, how are you going to do it, Lord? I mean, really, slap them up silly, Lord. It's it's not there, is it? They ask, how long? Has been the plea of God's suffering people down through the ages. Even Psalm 74, verses 9 and 10. Look, we, we do not see our signs. There's no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. Oh God, how long? Will the adversary reproach? Will the enemy blaspheme your name forever? When, Lord, are you going to act on your behalf? And in your name? Those saints in heaven know that the Lord will eventually judge sin and establish righteousness in the earth, but they don't know His exact time schedule. Do any of us know when He's coming? Uh, One of us knows when He's coming. Some guy wrote a book a few years ago, 88 Reasons Why the Lord's Coming for the Church, in 1988. Well, I was there in 88. Anybody else there in 88? A few of us. Some of you were little kids about this big. 1988, right? Jesus didn't come. Somebody just a few years ago was saying, you know, Jesus was going to come in 2010 on May 21st, right? That came and went really fast. And then they try to revise it. Quit doing it. The Lord says, No one knows the day or the hour. I know. You just wait for me. But these saints in heaven, they know what's going to happen. They just don't know the time schedule. So they say, How long? So the Lord makes it clear to these martyrs that their sacrifice was an appointment. Listen, not an accident. It was an appointment. Their sacrifice was an appointment, not an accident notice verse 11 whoops oh god how long well, yeah, that was the one before Okay. now let's look at Revelation 6 verse 11 then a white robe was given to each of them and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer under the altar don't you think they're safe there? see? yeah because they're in heaven this is not on the earth this is in heaven. Uh, until both the number of their fellow servants it says and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. So there's a number. And you know there's going to be a number of of completed believers when the Lord says it's time for the rapture. There's a number. You, you don't know it and I don't know it. That's why he says keep telling people about Jesus so they can keep coming because there's a number. Well, the same applies here. There's a number of martyred saints in the seven-year period that when that is completed, then we go into the next phase or next dispensation of what God is going to do. So they're told to wait patiently, until more of their brethren and fellow servants are slain for their faith. And even, listen, even in the death of God's people, God is still in control. You see, God is not in heaven saying, oh my God, more of my people are being killed. What am I going to do? Maybe I should supply them with AK 47s. No, God is in control, He knows. And because of this, there's nothing to fear. There's nothing for us to fear. Yeah, we sometimes get angry because we see things happening in our government and around the world, this and that. But you know what? There's nothing to fear. God is in control. Take hold of that thought. And when it comes to the death of His people, look at what it says. Psalm 116, verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. It's precious to the Lord. Many others will be slain for their faith before the Lord would return and establish His kingdom. Well, then as today, there is this appearance that the enemy is winning. No, the enemy is not winning. Remember this, please. God will have the last word. Can you hold on to that thought? God will have the last word. It's not our word. It's God's word. He will have the last word and the last say in all of these things. So even in... This enlightened society of ours in the 20th and 21st centuries combined, thousands of true believers have laid down their lives for Jesus Christ, and certainly they will receive the crown of life. So remember the words that Jesus spoke concerning the church of Smyrna, the suffering, the persecuted church. I'm sorry, Revelation 2 verse 10, and we'll close with this tonight. It says, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. So that that speaks to all believers at, at all times. Not just to the tribulation saints. Certainly it speaks to them. But not just to them. It speaks to us too. Because if we're believers, we're going to share the gospel with people and some people are just not going to accept it. And they're going to say stuff that you may not like to hear, but it's all right. Listen. Do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation. Ten days, it said. Now, we studied that before, so we're not going to deal with that now. But he says, be fearful. I'm sorry, be fearful unto death. I'm sorry, be faithful unto death. Ah, My tongue is tied. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now what he's saying there is be faithful unto death which, which means, you know, that we live our lives, we, we gladly give our lives for Jesus every day. So just be faithful unto death. We're to die daily so we be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. However death comes for us, it may not even come for us. In a sense, rapture is death. Because we change from one state to another. Isn't that what happens at death? The body dies, but the spirit continues on with the Lord. Rapture in that sense is no different. Something changes. Read 1 Corinthians 15. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we're going to change. So, there's even a little hint of death in rapture, but there's also death to life. And That's why when we see about Enoch, or even Elijah, we realize then that God's in control, and we don't have to worry about death. But if we're faithful unto it, there will be a crown of life. No one earns that. It's given by God's grace to those who believe and trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and trust and believe that he's coming again. And so, with that in mind, we've seen one group of people here in chapter 6 with the opening of the fifth seal. Next time we'll see the other group. This group has gone to heaven. We'll have to see where the other one's going the rest of the chapter there. So let's pray.